Good morning, y'all. How y'all doing this morning? Everybody good? I mean, man, let's try that again. How, how y'all doing this morning? We good? All right, let's go. Um, listen, my name is Eric. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. Uh, if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 10. We're going to be uh, at verses 19 through 25 while, while you're turning there. I'm excited about some of these events. Uh, that are coming up. Uh, I'm especially excited about uh, the, the turkey bowl that we have in. And so once you know that is for men and women alike, all of us get out th- there and play football. This will be the first year I'm not playing, right, because of my Achilles tendon, uh, but uh, it's going to be a good time. I'm excited about that. It's, it's always fun. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be in verses uh, 19 to 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. We're in the middle of a series titled, uh, Why You Need a Biblical Church. And today we're going to be coming from the topic, uh, Why You Need Biblical Fellowship. Like, why you need uh, community. And so, uh, go ahead and meet me at uh, Hebrews 10. And so, uh, Mike Tyson, right? Um, old heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, he was a guy back in the 90s. Man, he was not only winning fights, he was knocking people out in the first round, right? Uh, and so, I, I remember this interview that Mike Tyson, a reporter, came up to him and was talking about his next opponent. And the next, uh, he was talking about the next opponent, and he was saying, hey, Mike, your next opponent has an has a amazing plan against you, right? Like, he has a great plan against you. He thinks he has the secret uh, to finally taking you down. And to that, Michael uttered uh, one of the greatest one-liners, I believe, in American history, right? It's up there with, like, Patrick Henry's Give You Liberty, Give You Death. It's up there with Neil Armstrong's uh, One Small Step for Man, One Giant Leap for Mankind, right? So, so, so to that statement, right, that my opponent has a plan, uh, Mike Tyson uttered uh, this statement. He says, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and I love it. And that quote actually gets us uh, to the passage that we are at today. And, and I say that because uh, of this. The writer of Hebrews is right into a group of people uh, whose uh, jaws hurt right? Their faces are sore. Life has punched them um, in the face. And so uh, let me give you the context. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who they've left their old way of Judaism aside, and they've um, declared that they're now going to follow Jesus. They declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and they've announced their plans to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. And soon after they began to follow Jesus, life got really hard for them. What happened was they were maligned and they were mistreated all because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And a result, as a result of all of that, that malignment and mistreatment, they were tempted to give up. They were, they were tempted to forget about all the plans that they had made to follow Jesus. They were tempted to throw in the towel. They, 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 were, they were tempted to leave it all behind. And in this letter, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know exactly um, who that is, but in this letter, this writer is encouraging them to stay the course. Like he's encouraging them to not give up. And what, what, how he does this is that he's trying in this book to give them a clear vision of who Jesus is and what he's done. You see, in this test, I love it. The writer of Hebrews doesn't hit them with this, like, try harder strategy. Like, th- th- that doesn't work. What he's doing is he's reminding them of all Jesus is and the beauty of what he has done. And he's encouraging them to endure because of the greatness of Jesus. And the reason why I'm saying that this morning is because this is a word for us, too. Here's the thing. We are able to endure because Jesus is worth it. We're able to endure because Jesus is better than anything that you might be tempted to give your life to. 
And in this text, one of the primary tools that God is going to use in your life in order to help you endure in Christ's likeness is other people. One of the primary tools that God is going to use in your life to help you grow in Christ's likeness and endure to the end is the gift of other people. It's the gift of his church. And so with that said, I want to read this text together, and then we're going to take a moment to pray. So Hebrews 19, I mean Hebrews 10, sorry, verse 19 through 25, here it is. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another um, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is the word of God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Uh, Father, we are grateful for what you have done for us. We are grateful that you would send your only son, Jesus, to die a death on the cross in our place for our sin so that you could adopt us into your family and make us sons and daughters of you. And you've given us brothers and sisters as well. And these brothers and sisters all around us are our gift to help us endure the Christian life. So help us, God, to avail ourselves of that gift. Help us to love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to hear your word today and respond to it in faith and obedience. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen, amen. All right. So Hebrews chapter 10, guys, um, the writer is explaining how Jesus is once and for all, the, uh, the, the, the once and for all sacrifice uh, for our sins. And what he's trying to say is that we now have access to the God of the universe because Jesus shed his blood uh, for us. And if you have trusted and believed in Jesus, hear me today, you can know in the depths of your soul that God is not angry with you, that you can know in the depths of your soul that God doesn't have issues with you because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. God looks at you. This is amazing. With the same approval, the same love, the same affection as when he looks at his only son. That you can know this in the gospel because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. We are under the gaze of a God who, when he looks at us, his heart is bursting with love and compassion. With love and compassion. And my question for you this morning is, do you know this? I'm not talking with a simple head knowledge. Yeah, I get that. Like, I knew the song, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. I'm not talking about a head knowledge. I'm talking about a deep, abiding, experiential knowledge. Do you know that down to your bones, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a screw up? When God looks at you, he doesn't see um, someone that he has his arms crossed and he's ready to smite. When you are in Christ, he looks at you full of love and compassion. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear that God has made a way for you to experience that. That God has made a way for you to be made right uh, with him. And this is, what, this is all in what Jesus Christ has done uh, for you. See, Jesus died a death on the cross that you deserved. And he rose again in power so that when you trust and believe in him, 
When you stop following your own way and stop trusting in your own self as the Lord of your life and you trust in Jesus as Lord, you can know the God of the universe. You can know his approval and you can know his love. And my question for you today is this. How is your life changed today if you truly believe that fact? How would your life change today if you knew that the God of the universe, the God that flung galaxies into space, the God that hung uh, Jupiter, <laughs> the God that knows every single galaxy, every, every grain of sand, that this is a God that approves on you. He doesn't see a screw-up when he looks at you. He doesn't see a failure when he looks at you. He doesn't see someone that he can't wait to get his hands on. What, what if you truly believe that you can stand before a holy God with confidence like Hebrews, 9, Hebrews 10, 19 says? Well, I love this passage because this passage actually tells us what would happen if you truly believe that. What would happen if you truly believed that, right? So in this text, we actually see uh, three things, and we're only going to focus on one of them. But in Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, we, he, we see let us mentioned three times. See, a lot of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the author says first, let us. He says, let us first in verse 22. He says, says let us draw near. So what he's saying in verse 22 is this. He's saying we don't have to hide from God anymore. He's saying we can come freely to God and confess our sin, and instead of finding wrath, we now found grace. He also says in light of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, he says in verse 23, not only do we draw near, we also hold fast to our confession of faith. And what that means is that you now have the ability to trust the promises of God no matter, no, no, no matter, no matter what, even when it's hard. And then this also leads us to the text that we're going to be in. But to that last point, here's, I wanna, here's what I want to articulate to you. Verse 23 helps us understand this, that the difficulty of life is not an indication that God has changed his mind about you. Like you can hold fast to his promises even when life is hard because the difficulty of life is not an indication that God has changed his mind about you. That's not the case. He's faithful. His promises are true. You can trust him. But this morning, we're going to focus on verse 24 and 25. And verse 24 and 25, it, 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 it says this. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, what I appreciate about this is I appreciate it, especially, let's start at verse 24. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. I love that word consider because here's the thing. When you understand that you, are, that you are loved and approved of by the God of the universe, the infinite God of the universe, here's the thing. You understand that nobody's approval of love can even sniff or match God's love. When you understand and know that nobody's love matters more than his, and when you truly understand that, listen to me this morning. This verse says that you are now free to no longer be fixated on yourself anymore. See, before Christ came in, all we were doing is walking around thinking, me, 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 me. And when you understand that the God of the universe approves of you, and that's the actual approval that you've been looking for your entire life, you are now free to no longer be fixated on yourself, and you can now open your eyes to consider other people around you. The gospel frees you to consider other people. Man, my kids, um, 
I always give analogies about my kids because they, they are just like, they didn't understand when they were born and they would become sermon analogies, right? And so uh, that's just what happened, all right? And so my, my kids, they always wait to the worst moment to ask you for stuff, right? Like, like they know I want to give them stuff, but like, I always wait to the worst moment. So the other day, I took a trip to the grocery store and um, we get out the car and we're um, walking in. I got all these bags with me. And I, if you know me, I'm one trip aired, right? Like I'm a guy that you got grocery bags in the, uh, in, in the car, I'm not taking two trips. I'm taking one, right? And so, man, we're walking in. I got the grocery bags with me, man. Cut it off my circulation. And then, like, one of my uh, kids uh, took that as a moment to ask, Daddy, can you tie my shoe? Right? And I'm looking at him like, listen, man, come on. Like, like I, I can't consider tying your shoe right now. I would love to. I can't consider tying your shoe because my hands are full, <laughs> right? And I say all that to say we live like that. Like, for most people in the room, you would love to consider other people. Like, you would love to consider their needs, but the issue is this. Your arms are full, and your arms are actually full with you. Your, your arms are full with you. And because of that, you don't even have the ability to consider other people. Right? We're so concerned with what other people think about us. We're so concerned with how we're coming across. We're so concerned with the question, do people respect me? We're so concerned with how people view us, and our arms are full, and because of that, we don't have the ability to consider others. But hear me today, in Christ, you are now free to consider other people. In Christ, you are now free to consider other people. In the light of the gospel, this verse says, let us consider other people. Why? Because in the gospel, God of the universe says, I got you. The God of the universe, whose opinion, the only opinion that matters in this universe, he's declared to us that his approval and love is actually enough. You don't have to worry about the other people in your life. You don't have to worry about how they're viewing you. He sees you. You don't have to constantly worry about getting the approval from other people. He's saying, I've given you that in my son, and now you're free. You're free. You can drop yourself. And you can reach out to somebody else. And this is typically even what we do, even in a gathering like this. It can be very easy to come to church every single week and to simply declare, yo, what about me? It can be easy to walk into a gathering like this and you walk in and you're thinking, who's going to greet me? Who's going to be kind to me? Who's going to bear my burdens? Who's going to see me? Who's going to love me? And I love that the gospel frees us up to take our minds off of ourselves and to actually put it on other people. I'll put it this way. Biblical fellowship begins with considering other people. That's where it begins. Biblical fellowship can't happen if everybody is in our gathering worried about themselves. And that's one of the reasons why, man, we decided to put that greeting time um, in the middle of our service. Because we wanted there to be an intentional time. We didn't want just like greeting one another and encouraging one another to be this optional thing before and after service if you choose to opt in. No, we wanted an intentional time. I know five minutes is short, but we wanted an intentional time in which we actually have an eye to see other people in the church body in order to encourage them, right? So the question you may ask about this is, okay, Eric, consider other people. So what do we consider? So what, are we, what should we consider? Here it is. Biblical fellowship is this idea of you are now free to consider, and consider really means just fix your mind on to constantly think about. You are free to consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. 
You're free to consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. I love it because that word for stir up actually means to provoke or agitate. To provoke or agitate. And you may look at that word and you're thinking, yo, Eric, that is the last thing I want to do to somebody. I don't want to provoke or like agitate somebody. That seems so negative. Like I, I don't like people doing that uh, uh, to me. And I say that because of this. Because when we typically think of provoking, we tend to think of somebody who's intentionally trying to, to, to annoy you, right? But like, um, I don't know if you've ever lived with someone who it feels like they live to annoy you. Like, I've done that before, not in the last 10 years, because my wife is amazing, right? Uh, but before I, um, before I got married, I had a roommate back in the day. And this dude, he was like a practical joker. And he would do just dumb stuff all the time to make me frustrated, right? And so he would do stuff like hide your left shoes. <laughs> or he would, like, pull the HDMI cord out, the, out of the back of the TV so, like, to watch you, like, uh, get frustrated by, like, the television that's not coming on, right? Um, I would say that's not what stir up means in this verse. Here's the thing. To stir up doesn't mean to annoy a peaceful person. To stir up in this text actually means to wake up a drowsy person. To wake up a drowsy person. I don't know if you've ever been in situations that immediately cause drowsiness. Some of you guys are like, I'm in one right now. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you preach, right? Uh, but, but, but for me, it's always driving. It's always driving. For me, I got a two-hour limit. Two-hour limit, right? Like, if I'm driving, I'm the worst road trip partner, right? Like, if I'm driving, I, tell, I got two hours. It doesn't matter what time of the day it is. It doesn't matter how much sleep I get. After about two hours, your boy's getting drowsy. Like, I'm calling out to anybody in the car to take the wheel for me. Um, so that uh, I, I can go ahead and, and take a nap. Uh, but this text describes this. It implies that we all share um, life in this world. And if we leave ourselves to life in this world, outside of biblical fellowship, we'll become spiritually drowsy. We'll become spiritually drowsy. And if we're not careful, life in this world will simply make us that way. Guys, listen, the culture of this world runs counter to the culture of God's kingdom. And if we're not careful, we'll just drift and become drowsy if we give ourselves to it. Guys, we know DC life. It's easy just to drift towards a culture of overwork. And that'll all of a sudden form us into people that think that your purpose of life is production. And then you'll get drowsy to God's purpose for you, which is his glory. We live in a culture of rage right now where everybody is yelling at each other. And if you're not careful, you could just... That can make you grow drowsy, right? And not realize that God, God desires for his people to be peacemakers. You become drowsy to God's purposes for you. I'll keep going. We live in a culture of individualism where life is all about you, and it'll make you drowsy to the fact that God desires um, to, for you to have people around you that you love in the body of Christ, even when it's inconvenient to your preferences. Right? Our world will make us drowsy to the ways of God, and God has given us each other in biblical fellowship as co-pilots, so to speak, to shake us and to make sure we remain alert to the calling that God has given us. This is what biblical fellowship is all about. This is what provoking is all about. We're called to provoke, to gently shake each other, to love well, and to do well. And we need this. This is what biblical fellowship does. And here's the thing, we would, do ourselves, do, we would do ourselves well to ask this question. Do the people around me in the church help me to love and act more like Jesus? Do they provoke me? 
Do they gently nudge me? I'll give you another one. Like, do the conversations that I have with people around me, do they even naturally drift towards Christ? I can tell you it is possible to have community in church that is not biblical. It's possible to get together with people outside of church and a conversation never drift towards Christ's likeness. The conversations never drift towards how you're doing in Christ. Conversations never challenge you. We do fun things together, right? That may be fellowship, but that ain't biblical. So the question we should ask ourselves is, man, God, God, God how might you use me to produce biblical fellowship within the church body? And I love it because the goal of biblical fellowship is this, is to be shaped into the character of Christ to be shaped into the character of Christ. And let me tell you, this is why this church gathering on Sunday mornings is actually a gift. It's no accident that, the, that, that, that this writer talks about stirring one another up right before he talks about the gathering of believers um, in Christ. You actually see this um, in verse uh, 20 uh, and 24. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Not neglecting to meet together as is of the habit of, of, of a son. And this is why you can't hope to consider people that you never see. You can't hope to consider people that you never see. If the Bible is calling us to consider and to stir one another up towards love and good do, uh, love and good works, you can't consider people that you never see. And our bit is always going to be to consider ourselves. Our bit is always going to be to consider the people that are closest to us. Our bit is always going to be to consider people who are just like us. But hear me this morning. When you gather with the people of God, we have an opportunity to consider people that you otherwise wouldn't. That you otherwise wouldn't. Look around the room, y'all. Who are the people that you would never consider during the week, you would never think about if you did not regularly see them? But let me pause. That's rhetorical. I don't want y'all to say the name out loud. I don't want you to look at the person. That's awkward, right? Don't stare. But it's this kind of gathering, right, filled with opposite people and unlikely comrades that will change the world. And every single week, God has given us the opportunity to, to, for people to come together who aren't like each other, we don't necessarily fit together by the world's eyes, to show and declare that he's real. This gathering can change the world. Matter of fact, think about it. What would happen if Christian lawmakers and Christian unwed single mothers got together and actually thought, how do we stir one another up towards loving and works? Don't you think that certain policies in the world might change if that happened? Or what if the Christian elderly and young kids thought this way? How do we stir one another other, other up towards love and good works? Don't you think the perceptions of one another might change? What if families with kids and lifelong singles considered how do we stir one another up towards love and good works? Don't you think the way that we actually think about family might change? This gathering that we have every single Sunday can change the world. It's an opportunity for us to consider one another and give witness to the, beautiful, to, to the beauty of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I'll read verse 24 again. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the, is the habit of some. I'm going to zoom in on that word habit, right? See, the reason why the, uh, the writer is encouraging the church to gather together it's because gathering, listen to me, is one of the habits that we need to be formed more deeply into followers of Jesus Christ, right? 
And so here's the thing. There's been a revival in interests and habits recently kind of in our world. You got James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, and everybody's kind of on this, this habit train. And, and, and so many books on the market about the fact that we're habit-forming creatures, that our habits shape us because we're beginning to realize that we are our habits, like you are what you habitually do. And in this text, we see that the habit of not gathering with other believers is being formed in these people, right? And it's likely that these believers, listen to this, stop gathering because of opposition to Christianity. The, the opposition was heavy, and they're thinking, man, you know what? Uh, gathering together is going to make me a target. So I'm going to not gather with believers until, like, persecution dies down. I'm not going to gather because it's hard. Maybe they reasoned. Um, maybe they reasoned that way. And because human beings are habit-forming creatures, for some of them, they never made it back. And here's the thing. A conscious decision to not gather eventually became a habit. It became automatic. I'm going to bring this to your neighborhood today because we're shaped by our habits. I love this author, Justin Whitmell Early. He writes this book called The Common Rule, and he said this about habits. He said, we have a common problem. By ignoring the ways habits shape us, we've assimilated to a hidden rule of life, the American rule of life. This rigorous program of habits forms us in all the anxiety, depression, consumerism, injustice, and vanity that are so typical in the contemporary American life. We desperately need a set of counterformative practices to become lovers of God and neighbors we were created to be. Pretty much what he's declaring is, listen, um, just by living life in America, we are being shaped into an American rule of life. And to leave this gathering and not, uh, and, and, and not elevate this gathering in our lives is giving ourselves over to that rule of life. He's saying, even in this test, he's saying one of the counterformative practices that can help us fight against what he calls the American rule of life is gathering with the saints regularly, right? So I want to encourage you guys to not forsake this gathering. I'll give you this point, and this is not hyperbole. The gathered church is the primary tool that God uses to produce biblical fellowship among his children. The gathered church is God's primary tool that he uses to produce biblical fellowship among his children. But here's the problem, y'all. We can't always immediately see how he uses this tool to produce biblical fellowship. I'll give an example. Man, last night, uh, I, I, I turned on my television, and uh, the old school movie Karate Kid was on. Has anyone ever seen Karate Kid? I've actually given this analogy before, man, but it was great watching it and being reminded of it. Uh, but um, I won't give you the whole plot, but uh, Mr. Miyagi is training this kid named Daniel uh, to enter this karate uh, tournament and to win it. And uh, so he's training uh, Daniel, and, but uh, Mr. Miyagi gives uh, Daniel all these household chores, right? He got uh, Daniel um, um, sanding his floors and waxing his car. Y'all know the line, wax on, wax off, right? And so he got Daniel doing that, and Daniel's frustrated. He's upset. He, and when there's this one scene where he goes to Mr. Miyagi. He said, man, uh, I didn't come in here to do household chores for you, man. I quit. Like, I, I'm, I'm done with this. And in this moment, in that scene, uh, Dan, uh, Mr. Miyagi shows Daniel how all the movements, the habitual movements of sanding the floor and waxing the car, how that actually formed Daniel into a fighter. Right? Daniel couldn't see it. He thought Mr. Miyagi did not know what he was doing until Mr. Miyagi stood in front of him and, 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 and showed him that. 
And I love it because in that moment, David, um, Daniel moved to, from questioning Mr. Miyagi to trusting him. And I say all that to say we can tend to think something similar to that about the church gathering. Sometimes we don't see how the rhythm of hearing a sermon this week or taking communion or praying together, those things, or, or greeting one another. We can't always see how that's making a difference. And so, so we don't always see how this is transforming us. And I say this to you guys. You don't have to see it right now. You don't have to see it. But keep showing up. Because here's the thing. God is doing something even when you can't see what he's doing. God is doing something even when you can't see what he's uh, doing. And this is what faith is. Faith is believing what God has required is good even when you can't see it. And I'll say something here about that. I think often we overestimate what one church gathering will do in our lives, and we underestimate what a thousand church gatherings will do in our lives. We often expect to come to church and have this incredibly transformative experience, man, where something hits us and we're changed um, in, in, in the moment, and God can certainly do that. That can happen. But what is more likely than that is this, that you'll experience change not from one gathering, but from many. Like, it's the ongoing habit of singing praises to God and hearing him speak through his word and obeying Christ weekly and participating in the Lord's Supper and greeting one another and considering one another that will change you. Uh, Trevin Wax, he's an author, he puts it this way. He says, it's not the one sermon that changes your life, but the a thousand sermons you hear over the decade. It's not the one worship experience that forms you, but the weekly rhythm of refocusing your heart and mind on the God who made you as you praise the Savior who redeemed you and sensed the spirit that dwells in you. Y'all, don't underestimate what many Sundays can do to your soul. Keep showing up. God is shaping us in biblical fellowship as we sing his word and hear his word and encourage one another even when you have a hard time seeing it. So keep showing up. Don't give up on this habit. But gathering, hear me today, it's not simply about showing up. Let's go back to the text. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. See, I love this because we come not simply just to come and sit there, right? We don't come simply to come. We come looking for ways to encourage the people around us. Like, we, we, we come looking for ways to provoke one another towards love and good works. And then he says in his test, he says, and then all the more as you see the day drawing near. And in this test, it seems like the writer has in mind the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this gathering, one of the things that it does is that it helps us remember that our ultimate hope is in Jesus and his return. That's our ultimate hope. And the writer is saying, listen, we're doing all of this together because the day is coming. He's saying we gather like this because we have a shared hope. We have a shared hope. Here's what I want to give you. Biblical fellowship directs your life towards its proper hope. Towards its proper hope. Eric, what are you talking about? I'll bring it home. The direction of your life is determined by your ultimate hope. The direction of your life is determined by your ultimate hope. The question that we ask ourselves to determine what, about, what is our ultimate hope is this, is what do you ultimately long for in life? What do you hope for? 
Every group of people, no matter who you are, we are guided by hopes and longings. That's what, the, that's what propels us in life. And it's likely when you find um, yourself, uh, uh, like, like for many of us, when we find ourselves at work, you are, uh, you are among a people whose hopes and longings are wrapped up in success, right? It's likely when you find yourselves among your friends that you are among a people whose hopes and longings are wrapped up in the pursuit of a certain status or a pursuit of a spouse or more square footage. I don't know what it is. But here's what I want to point out in all of that. Your hopes and longings are contagious, are contagious. Listen, the hopes and longings of the people around you sooner rather than later become your hopes and longings. And I'll give you some examples. I can trace back uh, some of my hopes and longings to become a pro basketball player to the fact that everybody on my block had hoop dreams. It did not matter that my dad is five foot nine and my mom is five foot flat. Right? It didn't matter that I was the shortest guy on the block. I wanted to become a basketball player. Why? Because everybody else wanted to become one. My hopes were contagious. Hopes are contagious. Remember in high school, I wanted to date a particular girl because everybody else wanted to date a particular girl. The hope was contagious. I remember growing up, I wanted a particular career because I saw other people that had that career and they were well thought of and it seemed like they had a great life. So that's what I wanted. Hopes are contagious. I remember wanting a certain kind of house with a certain square footage. Why? Because I saw, I saw the pictures online. You see the Instagram photos of the people with their houses. And you're like, man, I really want that. Hope is contagious. And as I trace back all of my hopes, it, may, it led me to two things. One, I've already said it. Hope is contagious. But two, here's the thing. I keep catching hopes that leave me wanting more. <laughs> I keep catching hopes that leave me wanting more. I keep catching hopes that other people have, and then I end up in the same place that they are, dissatisfied. And every day, hear me today, in your neighborhood, every day you are tempted to put your hope and longing in places that can never satisfy you, where they were never supposed to be. And here's the thing. Biblical fellowship is a tool that God uses to calibrate your soul towards its proper hope. Bank is going to come back up. So there was this man, Robert Jones, lives in the UK, and uh, he had a really bad day one day, and all he was doing was following his GPS. His GPS told him to turn right, he did it. His GPS told him to turn, told him to turn left, he did it. And he was cruising these British streets, all of a sudden his, his GPS told him to turn right down this gravel road, and he didn't have any reason to question that. His GPS had never led him astray. And so um, he's going down this gravel road, and the road starts to get narrower, but he's trusting his GPS. The GPS can't lead him wrong. And sooner rather than later, uh, he runs up against a wire fence, and his car is teetering over in a 100-foot cliff. All because he was following his GPS, but here's the issue. His GPS wasn't calibrated. <laughs> his GPS wasn't calibrated, so it led him in the wrong direction. And I love this text. This text talks about the day that's approaching. And it's telling us that there's a destination for all of us. And if you trusted and believed in Jesus Christ, our ultimate hope is Christ's return. Like, that's where we're all headed. For those who have loved Jesus, who trusted him as Lord, there is no greater hope than that, than Christ returning, than us receiving his well done. So we set our hopes on that day. But then here's the issue. We live in a world 
that calibrates our souls to find hope elsewhere. So when you leave here and go to work, you're going to be around people who say, hey, listen, hey, listen, don't go that way. Hope is actually found down Success Boulevard. Or you're going to turn on your television and they're going to say, hey, you know what? Hope is actually found down Achievement Way. You're going to look around even in our world right now and you're going to say, man, like for, for some people, you're going to see how hope is found down Pleasure Road, Contentment Highway. And many of us, that's where we're rolling. But what biblical fellowship is meant to do, what this gatherer is meant to do, even once a week, is to play your part in the spirit recalibrating your souls towards its proper hope. That all week you're being bombarded by rival hopes and dreams. And to give your life to biblical fellowship is to be reminded once again every single week where your hope truly lies. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust in any frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Y'all, when we gather together and we sing like that and we hear him speak to us and we take the Lord's Supper every single week, when we greet each other and encourage each other every single week, we are recalibrating our souls so that Jesus is made bigger in our hearts than the, t than the things that we're tempted to hope in in his life. So hear me this morning, NBC Arlington. One of the worst things, I'm going to challenge you today before we close. One of the worst things that we could do is declare that Jesus is our hope and to live as if he's not. It can be so confusing for people in our gatherings to see you raising your hands in worship and singing. Thank you, Jesus. Whatever song that we're singing this week. But then when they hang out with you during the week, your conversations never drift towards Jesus. When they hang out with you each week, they're never challenged to walk more like Jesus. When they hang out with you, they can clearly see that your hopes and dreams are tied up, not in Christ, but in something completely, totally different. I pray that our confessions of faith and our lives will match. And they'll produce a biblical fellowship that shows the world that Jesus is real. I'm going to take a moment to pray. And then uh, we're going to take a moment to actually see a living, breathing picture of what God can do to a life. So let's take a moment to pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the gift of biblical fellowship. And so, Father, I pray that each of us will commit to living in a way that you've made available. Because of what you, Jesus, did on the cross, you said that we are now free to consider each other, how to spur one another on towards love and good works. You declared that this gathering is an is a, is a, is a integral tool that you desire to use for that effort. And we do that having in our soul's view the ultimate day that you return. And none of the time that we spend among your people, encouraging people to walk in Christ's likeness will be wasted. God, will you form biblical fellowship among this body? And will you form Christ's likeness among us so that the world will see that you are real as a result of the way that we live among each other? Father, we love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.